Um, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Overanalyst podcast. Uh, today I'm doing the intro. Uh, my name is Martina or Seth the Overwitch on Twitch. I am joined by Mate or Comrade Potato on Twitch. Boo, bring back Brady as an intro guy. <laughs> Fuck you. And of course, uh, Brady, the Overanalyst on Twitch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're all doing well. Thanks for swinging by. And for today's episode, we also have a guest. Uh, we have MC from Ferris Moon. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming, and I hope you will enjoy this. <laughs> so the idea for today's episode would be uh, a discussion or some sort of a debate um, between um, pro and con view about antagonistic game design and how it evolved throughout the history. So, but let's go through first thing first. Uh, MC, can you tell me a little bit more, well, tell the viewers a little bit more about what Ferris Moon does? Uh, yeah, Ferris Moon is basically a small company where we gather together to produce a mod for a game named Uplink by Introversion Software. The mod in itself is called Unlink, and currently we are making uh, another game, uh, the guide that we are working on the background for. All right, great. So, um, Brady, do you want to start with presenting the, today's issue? Certainly. I'll present my issue, but or the issue, but not my, my argument. I think I'll, um, if it's amenable to him, I'll uh, give MC the first word insofar as presenting like evidence or an argument. Um, and firstly, MC, I want to thank you uh, personally for joining us today. For those who are not aware in our audience, MC was probably my Twitch channel's first really consistent supporter and my first moderator back when we started growing an actual community instead of me just firing off test sessions in like very early 2018. So I'm so, so grateful to you for being a part of our community, man, for your support. And I'm so, so happy that you could join us for this discussion. I'm happy to be here and... It's it's really nice to see how your you managed to grow uh, on Twitch, uh, and I'm glad I could help you achieve that. You sure have gone oh, a long way from the you jammer evolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. Um, still need to get around to finishing Hand of Fate 2 at some point. We do. Um, but yes, so glad to have you here. And today we're going to be kind of arguing the merits question mark of what collectively we've termed antagonistic game design or a series of design principles and mechanics that were typified i i don't know mc would you say probably more in old school crpgs from the 90s than in any other genre well it's more apparent in older game design i would say but it's also present in some fashion uh, in more modern genre and other, other medium in general, because, well, you see, the essence of being antagonistic in a game design going against the player um, is that you always want to give the player a challenge in one way or another, but sometimes it's easier to confront the player rather than to uh, just put a thing that you don't expect anything from the player and just letting him do his thing. If you put a, a challenge against him, you have to 
to show him that yes, sometimes uh, you are not prepared for that encounter because you haven't considered all the possibilities and you need to rethink your ways to be able to progress from this point on. So that could mm -hmm. apply uh, in older game design, but also newer. It's just more present in older game design because uh, the clunkiness of the controls are often a challenge for the, for the players that shouldn't be there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And is this um, your opening statement, or is there more you would like to say to kind of um, found your argument? I'm sorry, this this is a little clunky. We've never done um, a show in this format before. <laughs> it's okay, we are experimenting. Um, but I would say that uh, this is certainly one of the main points that I have to bring on the table, but there are those things that we can discuss over, discuss over time, like... Um, how oh, certain enemies in certain game can break the rules of mm -hmm. of the world to to fight the player. Like you would try to to do something that you expect uh, from an enemy, and it would just say, "Nope, you went the wrong way. Try again." And it might not even be fair. Like um, contextual contextual interaction with a boss, like where you have to uh, trigger a certain part of the area rather than targeting the boss, because uh, that boss cannot be vanquished any other way, even though you vanquish all other bosses uh, through regular method. That can really break the, the immersion of the game and thus mm -hmm. lead the player in, uh, in, uh, in a sense that the game is against them even though it's not. And I would argue that this kind of design might be useful in certain circumstances, uh, especially when you want to teach young audience why uh, putting rules in the game is important for everyone, because this is something that you can see um, in a younger audience where they want to change the rule every time Yep. They, every time it puts something against them and then uh, well if they are confronted to that they are faced with why that might be an issue or why it can also be an interesting challenge to solve because you haven't thought about it but you know like there certainly are merits to it I think okay no and I would, despite the fact that I'm going to be advancing what largely is the opposite argument, and something I generally adhere to, I don't believe there's much place for antagonistic design um, in games, I will concede happily that there are certain applications wherein it can be useful with the um, postscript that, at least from the outset, and we'll talk about this more with one of the examples of antagonistic design I would like us to focus on it for at least a couple minutes today, the explicit disclaimer that antagonistic measures, antagonistic design or mechanics are going to be presented to the player, and not that the challenge of the game, as it's being sold, as it's being offered you as an experience, is fair and balanced and relatively even-handed. Now, I've drawn up, and by which I mean I've paced around my kitchen for about an hour and a half, attempting to riddle out what I believe define antagonistic design to me. 
And really quickly, I would like to share with you guys just a few of the, the criteria that I established. And a lot of mine, I'm sorry, I'm not very technically minded, are kind of vague and ephemeral. But more than anything else, I would define antagonistic design as ex excessive, very esoterically informed, as in informed by typically expert knowledge of the mechanical underpinnings of a system or by the uh, developer's intent behind crafting a world or experience. So excessive, esoterically informed curation of player experience and agency. So MCU talked about the importance of tools and informing players of various ways in which they can or should use them. I agree wholeheartedly that this is at the heart of a lot of really good intuitive game design. I think about Dark Souls, which is not a series I would associate antagonistic design with in the least, because the series presents you with so many different tools and types of builds and weapons and items you can play around with, and to a greater or lesser extent, especially from the second entry onward, does its level best to make most of them viable. If you really want to run through the entire game with a halberd, or using miracles or hexes or what have you, you certainly can, and the game doesn't punish you for doing so. But oftentimes, in the types of games and experiences I associate with antagonistic design, that freedom, that even-handedness is not present in the least. And instead, hold on, where are my other um, criteria? Rest these games restrict or exclude ostensibly viable playstyles, in other words, those presented to the player as legitimate, and tools and etc., because they don't conform to extremely specific intended use cases of the same as conceived by the developers. I call this puzzle box design. Regardless of the tools or approaches offered um, to players, um, they have one or few highly specific intended solutions. Sorry, most um, encounters have one or a few highly specific intended solutions, which the player is penalized for not conforming to very tightly. And again, I can provide specifics later, but this to me is what is at the heart of a lot of this antagonistic design and why I feel it should generally be discouraged from application. If I want my player to be immersed, as you said, if I want them to play around with my world and explore while presenting them very fair, consistent challenges, I don't also want to constantly be slapping their hand and telling them, no, don't do it that way, do it this way, you deserve whatever penalties I place upon you because you didn't use the tools I created exactly as I intended them to be. Um, there's one tool or a handful of tools for job A, for job B, and so on. Your creativity, your agency has no place here instead of little place here. That is a fair assessment. And yeah, I mean... This, that's represent more or less what I have in mind for antagonistic gameplay as well. And the point where I would disagree is that Dark Souls, in essence, has some antagonistic elements to it in the way death is handled, because you can permanently lose a lot of souls and mm -hmm. thus have to conform uh, to a certain types of weapon or whatever, because you couldn't beat the boss with the way you wanted to, and you cannot prepare yourself better because you lost everything that you had. So in that sense, it can be quite antagonistic, but I don't think it is in a bad way because 
it's still a penalty that you have to to accept to be able to progress. Like you cannot take your souls for granted in that game. Um, that's very true. That's absolutely correct. Um, the distinction I would draw is actually between Dark Souls and Demon Souls, and I would add the caveat that in most cases in uh, one of the Dark Souls games, you generally have a presentable assessment of risk. Like, you know when you enter a boss arena, for instance, odds are good you're probably not going to get that on the first try, and that if you have a bunch of souls, or you enter an area that looks like it could be a boss arena, you might either want to spend them or accept the choice or the possibility of losing them. And likewise, for certain encounters with new or unique enemies that you usually... Not always. I will concede that the Dark Souls or the Soulsborne franchise, I think Bloodborne especially, has a lot of traps that you can't see coming, and that could constitute elements of antagonistic design, albeit not an overall ethos of antagonistic design. But I would say Dark Souls does not punish you for trying new things or trying to tackle um, uh, challenges in unorthodox manners or those that are not ideal as designed by the devs. Because there is a skill-based element, even if, for instance, I'm not using the best weapon, or a weapon my character is ideally suited for, if I'm able to assess visually and observe an enemy's movements, the things they're doing, what their animations look like, I can learn enough about them to evade most or all of their attacks, and that's presented to me in a very fair manner. For instance, halfway through, uh, what was one of the really tough fights uh, from Dark Souls 1? The Manus fight, for instance. Um, the boss gains a couple of new attacks, but it doesn't, for instance, start performing the attacks I've already learned how to dodge twice as fast or dealing twice as much damage or anything like that because I wasn't kitted out a certain way. The closest the series comes to anything like that is, I think, actually the Fume Knight fight in the second game, where the boss will immediately proceed to its second, faster, and more damaging form if you're wearing certain elements of an armor set that's associated with one of its enemies in lore. But no, Demon Souls has antagonistic game design. Anybody here familiar with the world tendency mechanic? Oh, lord. So... World Tendency was a flexible difficulty curve for Demon Souls that was only ever used for that title. Depending on certain aspects of the player experience, the game would either become easier or harder, with weaker or more powerful enemies spawning, and as you would expect, the rewards tended to increase with the difficulty curve. But here's the really messed up part. World Tendency would shift to make the game harder the more the player died, and easier the more bosses they defeated with relatively few deaths, creating an inverse difficulty curve. Which, to me, does constitute antagonistic game design because of another of the criteria I wrote down. Excessive punishment um, of the player or deprivation of tools as, like, penalty for failure. One of the reasons why I would claim the Dark Souls series generally averts antagonistic design is especially from the second game on, yeah, you might die. You might die a lot. 
but usually it's not going to be too difficult with things like shortcuts or bonfires being placed quite close to boss arenas to at least get back to the point where you did die, to that challenge that you hadn't overcome yet. And the game doesn't usually attempt to discourage you from doing that with minimal harm, with minimal risk or investment on the player's part. Contrast that with, say, some of the boss runs present in the first game, like the Ornstein and Smoff boss run through virtually all of Anne Orlando that poor Seth got quite well acquainted with. Uh You can argue that 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 style of design was relatively antagonistic, but it's something the devs tried to reduce over time, rather than embrace, as I would argue a lot of old-school CRPG developers did. Well, if I may um, just interject there for a second, I don't feel that that particular fight was antagonistic. I kind of looked at it as more of a... like a final exam kind of thing. Oh, no, not like, the fight. Not the fight at all. The forcing you to run through, like, most ah. of the stage every time you died. Okay, yeah. Because, no, bad player, you're supposed to do it like this. Um, and you deserve whatever the penalty is for, mm-hmm. for not immediately. Okay, yeah. Anything. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that run was especially annoying. Uh, the part where I had to summon um, the, the guy with the sun. How is it called? Solaire. Solaire, yeah, and every time he would get stuck somewhere and then I would die because the other things were chasing me. And I I feel like the only time where I was successful with that was when all the stars were aligned and the RNG gods were uh, very kind to me. Mm -hmm. Mm, But that in particular feels more like uh, the clankiness of the AI. And an Orlando is, let's say it's made to die. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls. It's a uh, it's a challenge about traversing the level, and mm-hmm. maybe maybe putting a a checkpoint closer to the bus would have been would have been kinder. But at the same time, I mean, once you traversed it once, it's less of a challenge. At least if you don't bring an NPC in. If you bring Solarin, it's a nightmare. I agree. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, because he will stop to fight every single enemy on the way to the boss door. And that's actually also something they improved for Dark Souls 2. I didn't notice until I was playing off screen recently, but they did. Um, like, if you just haul ass, your NPCs usually will as well. Yeah, but that's more generally a problem linked to... Uh, the programming of the AI rather than really the game design being antagonistic in itself. Like, mm-hmm. even if they knew that the, the AI was terrible, uh, they, they didn't plan it around to penalize the player. They just knew and said, well, they'll figure it out. <laughs> That actually ties into another point um, on my massive, massive ass list of criteria. But just really quickly, other things I would like to throw out there, unrelated to like the Dark Souls discussion, but things I think about when I think antagonistic design. Um, so much of it, to me, is about depriving the player of information or the opportunity to acquire information, and then punishing them for what I would call a lack of prescience um or this um 
effective expectation on the part of the player to be clairvoyant. This is something you see a lot of times in old school CRPGs, right? And yes, I understand to some people there is some charm to wandering into a new map and getting steamrolled by something five, ten levels higher than yourself. But the issue I have in regards to that is narratively, mechanically, how am I supposed to intuit what should or shouldn't lead to a failure state when a game isn't designed like Dark Souls? When the result of a failure state isn't me being sent back maybe with shortcuts open what? Maybe at the most 30 to 60 seconds worth of progress and instead having to reload an earlier save and replay minutes or, or like sometimes an hour of the game because I didn't know a challenge that was not telegraphed in any way, shape, or form was presented to me, or because whatever tools that had been sufficient for me to deal with all of the other challenges in a set, in an area, in a quest line, what have you, for whatever reason were arbitrarily insufficient to deal with one that was not necessarily poorly designed, but maybe improperly balanced. And this is something I see a lot regarding like online discussions of what we would term antagonistic design. And MC, you mentioned this in, I think, one of Seth's streams earlier. You're absolutely right. Games that are just kind of clunky or poorly balanced or optimized are somehow uh, lionized as, oh, paragons of real challenge or difficulty when it's like, maybe maybe that wasn't intended in the first place. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's, that's true for uh, a lot of things in games. Generally, you don't really expect anything you just try to do your best with what you got and then the challenge arises from that and people kind of uh, get excited by it for some reason like in dark souls to take that example you can get stuck on the geometry quite often and mm -hmm. i don't really see that as antagonistic per se i just see that as clunkiness and well you get used to it, basically, and it's fine. But when you never played that game, it's kind of frustrating to just sure. stumble on that. And saying get good on that kind of stuff is, well, get good. <laughs> no, exactly. And thank you for, for bringing that up, because I, I wanted to talk as well. Let me see, is there anything else I'm missing on my first page of notes? Because there's a lot. Um, yeah, there's this issue, this broader issue that doesn't have to deal with development so much as the feedback loop that especially in esoteric, like kind of niche audiences like that, which exists for CRPGs in the present, that developers have to be cautious of not falling into, right? Because Dark Souls, I think we might have mentioned this on stream before or on an earlier episode of The Overanalysts, you wouldn't know it based on Western marketing and, like, the discourse that's developed around it in Western gaming communities. But difficulty, like, just being hard, just being challenging, is not remotely a cornerstone of the Dark Souls design ethos. Not at all. The idea is about learning and exploration and growth and empowerment. Dark Souls and Demon Souls, uh, first, is meant only to provide the player with enough challenge to really play around with and have fun with the tool set that the game gives them. So that when you find a combination of mechanics and tools and items and gear that works for you, it feels like a triumph of the spirit. You feel like you learned something 
and you're having fun. It's good. It's positive. It's rewarding. It's not meant, first and foremost, just to smack people down so that only a small, quote-unquote, elite echelon of the player base can triumph over the game and understand, you know, what it's really about. Um, the, the same applies to, I think, at least in intent, a lot of classic CRPGs. Like, they weren't meant to be prohibitively difficult. A lot of them were due to just kind of clunkiness of design or what have you. But that's something that a small kind of harmful subset of the player base really latched onto and extolled as, oh, this is what this type of game, this is what this type of experience is really about. It's about exclusion, right? It's about saying, because so many people can't or won't do these things or beat these games, that's why we enjoy them. We are somehow better than them because we can do these things. And to me, that's just preposterous. Like, these, these are toys. This is, this is um, a form of entertainment. And I think people should be able, within reason, to engage with them in any capacity, with any relative scaling of difficulty that feels rewarding for them. And gatekeeping, exclusionism, elitism should not be a part of the culture or the audience that developers try specifically to develop for. And generally, it's not. Uh, it actually never is, no. We don't try to make games because we want some people to play them and not everyone. It's right. generally quite the contrary. We, we want as many people to play them as we can, so we can also learn from that. But... In general, well, money is fine, but you know. Uh, but they're, they're still really... It's really interesting because every time you build a game, the community will either be quite open-minded or very, very close-minded. Mm-hmm. And for the opening community, that's kind of the things we have with Unlink where it is close-minded and I don't completely agree with that because uh, well it's unfair for people who never played the game in the first place right. to just expect them to be good but at the same time when I advertise Unlink I say okay the difficulty has been increased because people who played the base opening game were not really satisfied with the difficulty anymore so expect it to be difficult. I recommend playing the first game and then come back to it. We will mm-hmm. answer a question, but know that it will be difficult. And generally that leaves everyone a little more open to new players rather than saying, yeah, well, if you don't know, you need to guess because that's how the game works. It's... You, you, it's part of the. It should be a part of the development team to actually uh, change that mentality, rather than saying, than piling on uh, the game. Maybe flows, maybe uh, decision making that were meant to make it harder, and just tell and tell the community, don't be dicks around that. Right. Right. And your explaining something that I think, again, is so important if you're going to be adopting... Not Again, this isn't what you're describing isn't antagonistic design. It's just like a game meant to be quite challenging. Being open and honest and explicit with that, like, hey, this is the type of experience you can expect. Um, and here's why we elected to pursue that design strategy. 
Nothing at all wrong with that. I think that's fantastic. I think more developers should do that, not just based around challenge, but like what's actually in their games, right? Like how many times have you heard somebody like from Ubisoft say, oh, we've got this vast open world, the size, I don't know, the size of Texas with so much uh, visceral, engrossing, um, completely immersive content. And it's like, yeah, but what do I do there? <laughs> like, what are you selling me? You know, that's something yeah. that more developers should strive for, that kind of candor. Mm, I agree on that. But even then, the the issue there that you are bringing on with the open world as of game is that generally they are not meant to be challenges. They are just meant no. to be uh, junk food that you can A consume after work. Yeah. And the main issue with these games is that they try to keep player interest by uh, giving rewards at every corner rather than making the reward a consequence of a challenge. And then from, from that point, you can see a little bit of why antagonistic is a little better because you want to to create a barrier between the player and the and the reward with a with an encounter, either fair or unfair, depending on the the value of the reward. Like if you have a game breaking item, you might put the game breaking enemies in it. Yes, absolutely. If this is something else I had written down that I think is important, because a lot of games, especially the old CRPGs I associate with antagonistic design quite broadly, don't seem to understand this. And it's one of my kind of one of the, the black marks I hold against antagonistic design as a whole is usually and this is one area where antagonistic design and like modern AAA open world design actually fall afoul of the same like um poor element or aspect of design in my mind is rewards do not feel as though they substantially impact or expand the player's toolkit or the ways in which they engage with the game. Now they do so in two very wildly different ways, right? If I'm playing an open world game, like God help me, if I decided like, man, I don't need these 80 hours in my life and decide to like play through an Ubisoft open world game because I hate myself. Um, so many of the rewards I end up uncovering, right, are incremental. They have absolutely nothing or usually little to do with my character's moveset, with the types of actions I can perform or can't perform, with the permissions to enter certain areas of the world. Instead, they just make the number go up a little bit, right? They're stat boosts, almost always. And these tend to feel very hollow when... As the stats increase, so too do the enemy's stats. So really, insofar as my like baseline experience as a player, it feels like nothing is changing, nothing is improving or iterating. I'm just kind of mindlessly watching these integers increase on my side and on the enemy's side. Nothing about the ways in which we interact is substantially changed. There, and are, no challenge, case, there are no challenge because you don't feel... A sense of accomplishment. There's no variation either. It's the same thing from start to finish appreciably. Um, but in the case of these older games that I would argue espouse antagonistic design, the issue often is, okay, I gain like a superior item, I gain a new ability or what have you, 
and immediately the difficulty curve or like the expectations of the player is ratcheted up by such a significant degree that I don't feel empowered whatsoever. I feel as though I'm still just barely skimming the surface with multiple resets or um, what do they call them in the old days? Reloads or what have you. So it doesn't feel as though my toolkit is expanding. It's feeling as though it's contracting, closing up behind me just as I gain the new item, just as I gain the new, the new thing, which doesn't mean that I'm supposed to be having an easier time at the game as I go along necessarily, but rather that, again, most of the tools, most of the items or party members or equipment that I uncover, the abilities, should feel should feel viable in some way, shape, or form if I really want to put in the effort to make them. So, And in a lot of these old games, I feel like that isn't the case. The ones that are handled poorly, that is. Some, like Baldur's Gate 2, um, Planescape Torment, they avert this quite spectacularly. But Yeah, I was playing Pool uh, of Ardeans, Runes of Midranald, to prepare for this podcast because it's still one of my favorite bad games that exists. <laughs> and it's... right. It's only bad because of the bug, but the game in general has ma manages to be bland in the exploration, but never uninteresting because of the atmosphere that it presents. So you can you can traverse off the map and still find enjoyment if it in it just because there are random encounters that can appear. You're never sure that you will encounter them, so that's that's why it can be bland, but there's always an atmosphere to it that uh, cancels that. And behind every tough monster, there is a piece of loot that will not only help you on your quest, but also be quite rewarding. Like, more often than not, you can find magic items that will help you unlock other areas where one enemies would just instantly kill you otherwise. And the game is not even trying to tell you that you will survive uh, any encounter. It will straight up kill you any chance it gets, and just by following the D&D rule set. Um, but what's interesting about that is you can you can uh, throw yourself at, at an encounter and maybe succeed with the tools that you are given, or come back later with better tools. And you can always put flags on the map to say, okay, I couldn't do that encounter, maybe later. And in, in that sense, the game is can be quite an enemy of the player uh, because uh, there are really, really tough monsters in uh, beginner's area. So... Uh, it's quite unfair when you look about it, but I think it's also quite interesting because with the the flag that you can put on, it's not it's helping the player even though it's trying to go against the player. If you see what I mean, right? It, it's giving you tools that you can use to um, not exactly circumvent challenge, but face it on terms that are more amicable to you than maybe when you first encounter these challenges. Yeah, that's correct. No, it, I think that's fascinating. And I think that's an aspect of, or a single singular element of the design that's good or um, encourages the player to think about the game and its world in a way that is maybe a little unorthodox to not just modern game design, but game design as a whole. Okay. 
I've got this massive ass world full of encounters. Which ones do I think are safe? Which ones will I need to delay for later? And the game gives me tools like uh, cartographic tools that I can use to keep track of all of these. Like that is not inherently a bad thing. I think that's quite good. Knight um, does it too, if I remember correctly, by yeah. flagging some areas. I believe it does. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, what else do I have, though, before we get on to my specific examples that I'm going to use? Because I wrote down, as it happens, entirely too much stuff. As Yeah, surprising. I know Brady has a lot to say, and it's poorly organized, right? Um, really, what I think epitomizes this type of design to me, though, and I, I've sat for, like, a couple hours trying to think of the best, most obvious examples of antagonistic design I could. So many of them, so, so, so many of them are CRPGs, like old-school, isometric, Western-style RPGs that would have been popular on computers back in the day, but also more modern games that attempt to emulate that style of design. And I kept wondering, well, okay, why is it that this genre seems to have isolated and retained so many aspects of antagonistic design when other games, even when they're challenging, even when they're really engaging, like Souls-likes, seem to have embraced, get this, not just, not making the games easier, because in many cases they aren't, but quality of life measures that make the management of one's own tools, one's own abilities, far more direct and straightforward, uh, more accessible and understandable to the player, is, well... I came up with a couple reasons, or a couple, like, distinctions that we can draw there. One of them isn't just excessive punishment, one of them isn't the embrace of clunkiness or sometimes imbalanced game design as an integral or desirable part of challenge, which does, for what it's worth, seem to be more popular amongst that crowd for whatever reason, but that these games also tend to embrace tedium to a certain extent in a very different way than the modern open-world game does. The latter is repetition or tedium through repetition. The former favors tedium through what I would consider excessive, um, like micromanagement of game systems and UI on the player's part. Like, okay, if anything can wipe me out and I'm not going to be given sufficient foreshadowing to determine, okay, there's a difficult encounter coming up ahead, or I'm about to enter a new zone or what have you, then I'm going to be juggling like 50 some odd save states simultaneously and micromanaging my, my inventory and what have you for every encounter, not just for those that seem like stylistically, narratively, they would merit it. But also, then, there is little to no integration in so many of these games, Dig, in, of gameplay and narrative. The latter is often seen or presented as a nice set dressing for the former. And uh, in a lot of CRPGs, then... The, the newer ones especially, I'm thinking of a, well, one or two use cases I'm going to bring out in like the back half of this episode. Um, actually attempting to become engrossed in a game's narrative or its world as it's presented to you, the player, with all the tools concomitant with the same role-playing tools, right? Like thinking, oh, maybe I want to play a really diplomatic character and avoid conflict as often as I can. Or maybe I want to align myself with this faction and pursue their quest line is often in a lot of the games I'm thinking of 
directly and immediately penalized. You're not supposed to be role-playing. You're not supposed to be getting largely or completely immersed in the world or in the tool set, the abilities that go along with your class, the types of weapons and armor we presented to you, the party members we presented that you might want to take along due to their narrative hooks. You're not supposed to be getting immersed in that because you're supposed to be a power gamer. Um, just, just for those who aren't familiar. And feel free to correct me, those of you who are more familiar with tabletop than I, but for our audience who doesn't have the context, power gaming or min-maxing in a narrative-driven tabletop or role-playing game experience usually refers to an approach that tends to emphasize what's going on under the hood, the mechanical underpinnings of, say, optimizing your character and the way they work mechanically, uh, emphasizing this stat, emphasizing uh, acquiring these skills or those items as quickly as possible with little to no regard for the role-playing aspects of the same, with building a character that feels good to you, with interacting with the world in ways that feel natural or like they would come sensibly to your character. You view it as more of a spreadsheet and like the way you would play a JRPG than you would a tabletop game. Is that largely correct, by the way? Is that a correct definition? That's correct, but um, also what you're, what you might not know is that actually in in the definition of role play there are many different kinds of players and some of them will be more interested in min maxing some of them will be more interested in the role play elements and you cannot really blame them to want something like that in a game and to expect something like that from a game it's the kind of player will say get good uh, but it's it's how they like to interact with a game, and I think there are some. I mean, it's interesting to to give them something to uh, to play uh, on that level if they really want to. And of course, it's not going to be interesting for everyone. There are definitely games out there that are for that caters to that kind of audience and. Even those who want to try to get into it can somewhat do so with little experience, but there's, there's a certain interest in trying to make something as challenging as possible for uh, that type of audience. And the real problem there, I would say, is if the audience reacts uh, against others rather than trying to help others. Yes. Definitely. And I think something that we need to consider, or especially as like audiences cognizant of the way game design works presently, is offering as many different, as is reasonable, right? As many different options for um, if you've got a really mechanically rich game, tweaking the mechanics, tweaking the way that challenge or that player agency is going to be presented to you, um, to your taste, right? This is something that I will say the Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2 enhanced editions seem to do really remarkably well. Like from the outset, there's something like, what, seven different difficulty settings? Um, I want to say one that is roughly equivalent with Dungeons and Dragons baseline rules, like just taken straight from the rulebook, plopped into the game. Uh, three that are slightly um, gentler with the player and three that are 
even more difficult and more encouraging of like hardcore men maxing. And so there's a kind of experience, roughly speaking, that's curated for anyone, right? And that I think should be um, encouraged. If you're going to adopt an antagonistic approach, you should, this is just me, but I, this is what I would like to advance. If you're going to do that, it should either have serious artistic narrative or otherwise aesthetic merit. There should be a reason beyond making a really hard game that some people might enjoy because it plays against them. Or it should be optional and probably not the default way in which your game, your world are presented to players unless you're very explicit about that fact. And that is something that uh, you see more and more in the modern TRPG genre. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Divinity Original Sin 2, which added uh, various uh, type of modes, like story mode for those who really didn't want to participate in combat, or tactician mode, which is for those who really want to get into the combat. Yeah, no, and I think that's great. I um, endorse that wholeheartedly, and I think that, again, when you have a system that's so mechanically rich... Oh God, help me! I'm about to I'm about to bring up my my kind of uh, not exactly a straw man, but probably <laughs> a game that handles antagonistic design more poorly than any other I've ever seen. Uh, that was you know reasonably successful, but I'm going to bring it up to praise it here. God damn it! That's something that Pathfinder Kingmaker does really well. Uh, that game, from a mechanical perspective is so shitty in so many ways, but they do allow the player to toggle individual mechanics, like, how much health would you ideally like your party members to have? How much should enemies have? Um, would you like to rest to restock XYZ? Here's a million different spectra, so they're not just toggles. You've got little sliders. That's really cool. Um, it's, it's about the only thing about the game's balance that's handled well, but that's really cool. Um, well, but to the point of Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would say for that game specifically, the main issue, and I don't know if it's still an issue because I haven't played it since the latest update, but the kingdom aspect was handled poorly, but the actual yeah. combat is really adherent to the rules, which is both antagonistic for those who never have had enough experience with D&D, but also very, very cool for those who have a little bit of knowledge of it because they can learn from it. They can uh, say they can use that knowledge to really make the game their own. So it, okay. it's, it's interesting. It is. And ho hold that thought because we're going to circle back around to that. I did some digging into like the way Pathfinder Kingmaker was designed and presented. And this was late last night. I learned mechanically under the hood, there is some obscene shit going on with the way that game handles combat. But we'll get around to that. So I, I'm glad you brought up Divinity Original Sin 2 because I actually really like the way those games handle combat. Um, especially like there's this, for those who aren't aware, um, it's kind of sort of a, a turn-based uh, RPG um, where the player is given a certain amount of points, or like a total, right, that can be spent on movement and action per round. Almost like a free-roaming, non-grid-based XCOM or something similar. No, that's, that's um, a fair assessment. 
And the ways in which you can interact with enemies or with the environment, right? The way that fire can spread out across like spilt oil or like a field of tall grass is amazing. And I love everything about it. But I mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of CRPGs uh, that embrace antagonist design do so specifically in regards to their narrative elements. What do I mean by this? I'm not talking just about not being able to play a character who never fights or can't fight worth a damn and then being uh, surprised when you get rolled by like a, a giant ogre or Etten or something, right? No, no, no. I'm talking specifically about the ways in which certain games handle dialogue options, which I'll talk about in a minute, but also the way in which games like Divinity sometimes explicitly punish player agency or consistent role-playing. Now, this is a problem that was fixed in the second game, if I'm correct, but um, you guys, um, Tina and Mate as well, you guys are familiar with the way the single-player campaign of the first game handled uh, Persuasion, right? Yeah, so for the uninitiated in our audience, the game had a really interesting persuasion mechanic that was essentially based around rock, paper, scissors, with you or your conversation partner earning points for every, like, um, favorable matchup. Like, it would keep going until one of you got... I think it, it differed depending on what you were trying to convince somebody of, how difficult it was, or how skilled you were. But usually, what, MC, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 points... Roughly, uh, yeah, that was correct. And that's correct. If you, yeah, you you need to you need to you need to do it several times just to be able to win. And then the the thing about that is everyone knew it was completely terrible, and no one should do it like that. Um, it's actually kind of a patch for the single player experience because in multiplayer. Uh, you only have to do it if uh, neither player agree to a situation and then they might fight it or they can talk about it and decide who should win, that kind of stuff. And they can. the way that can evolve is that each player tries to play a role and then um, they, they argue as player as who should uh win the argument and then from the character's perspective they fight sort of so yeah it was more of a patch for the single player experience and it was a mm -hmm. terrible way to handle it they, and they just, agree just to it <laughs> to give additional context to the audience once again um by default like i think a lot of the game was designed with like two player co-op in mind and it's really cool if the players were to disagree as to how a quest should be resolved or which among several moral or ethical options they should choose, they would get to play the persuasion minigame against each other to decide which course of action would ultimately be taken if they couldn't decide, you know, independent of themselves, as MC just said. But here's the thing. In the single-player campaign, your second, what would normally be your co-op partner's character, is controlled by the AI, and they are hard-coded to develop a personality and ethos that directly contrasts your own. What this means is, no matter what moral choices you make, at any point throughout the game, your co-op partner, the, the CPU, will step in and force you into a, by its very nature, 
largely random uh, persuasion minigame that has a very good chance of resulting in you being forced to do something you find reprehensible just by luck of the coin. This happens every single time, no matter how significant or insignificant the moral choice, with very rare exceptions. Now, yes, I, I also agree with MC. This is a fairly unusually pronounced form of antagonistic design, but I would argue it's also pretty quintessentially antagonistic. If you want to roleplay a character consistently, totally outside of combat, which this doesn't affect really in any measure whatsoever, um, we're going to punish you for that because you should, well, ideally be playing it with two players, or also you should be uh, convincing everyone of your, your rhetoric, of your morals, constantly. There is a, um, a reward for sticking up to your morals, even though you have to play that uh, minigame, is that you actually get points into a specific yes, you do. branch uh, for completing it. You can get stat upgrades and that kind of stuff, so it's not completely useless. And over the course of the game, it gets less and less present. So it's really in the starting area that it's okay. pretty bad. And the other major example I wanted to bring to the fore, and I've got several others here, I just don't want to drag us out, you know, for, for ages and ages, is the way, uh, the many, many ways in which Pathfinder Kingmaker handles its role-playing and narrative elements, or, sorry, role-playing and narrative, listen to me, role-playing and gameplay elements, or rather the fact that it doesn't attempt to integrate them much at all. Um, so for what it's worth, I, I feel the need to give a disclaimer. Despite everything you're about to hear, I kind of like Pathfinder Kingmaker. It's a beautiful game. Visually, it's great. Like, the soundtrack is pretty bog-standard, but perfectly robust. The voice cast is fantastic. The character's likable. The plot um, directly um, adapted from one of the most popular Pathfinder adventure campaigns of all time is phenomenal. I really, really enjoy the game's world and the opportunity to engage with it. And the opportunities you have to express and develop your character almost unrivaled in any other like big budget modern like uh, CRPG. Really, it's phenomenal. You can be so many different types of person. You can be so many different classes or syntheses thereof. Um, you sometimes get as many as, what is it, MC? Like, as many as a dozen different resolutions to certain quests, depending on what you do. It's amazing. Mm, yeah, and uh, it also varies depending on what you did earlier, which character mm -hmm. you met earlier. So there's, there's a lot of content to play around in that game. And it's all of the narrative content, for better or worse, is so detailed, so rich, so good. And that's why I absolutely despise its gameplay. Let me explain. Pathfinder works not dissimilarly to Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2. That is to say, it's a very straightforward adaptation of the rules used for a popular tabletop gaming uh, system. In this case, of course, it's the Pathfinder Adventure System. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, my tabletop savvy friends here can correct me if I'm wrong, but Pathfinder, at least in its base edition was maybe, according to some people, a little bit trickier or more finicky than D&D 3.5e, but not by much. The grappling um, rule. The grappling rule. Yeah, the grappling rule. <laughs> um, but 
Um, the game itself, compared to a Baldur's Gate, compared to the games that used a D and D inspired um, mechanical um, design that were produced by Bioware, like uh, I think Neverwinter Nights, um, Kotor, both of which are games I enjoy and can play. Certainly not perfectly, but reasonably well. I'm not the worst tactical RPG player in the world. Pathfinder is brutal. It is one of the hardest, probably the hardest CRPG I've ever played, unless we're counting Baldur's Gate 1 at the very beginning, if you play a mage and get unlucky enough to run into a wolf on your way uh, <laughs> to, like, the second map. Definitely. Um, every time, and again, that, I would argue, is not necessarily antagonistic design so much as it is just really clunky and balancing. Um, here's the issue with Pathfinder, though. Why it's so brutal. And people like dug into the game and looked into this. Because the devs, while presenting a remarkable amount of narrative choice, largely adapted, as near as we can figure out as like a community, their house rules into the way the game was designed and played. And the game encourages, by its fundamental design, pretty extensive power gaming. So if you don't know exactly how every class in the game works, and if you're playing like a spellcaster or someone like that, if you don't know what all of the like dozens and dozens and dozens of spells and abilities available to you do, which ones you should take at what level and when, you just try to feel your way through the game, not only are you going to have a bad time, you'll probably have to restart several times. Um, and a lot of this isn't really competently telegraphed to the player, but that's not the issue in and of itself either. Sorry, two more things, then I'll... Uh, the. I guess the prosecution will rest. Um, one, the game has so many wonderful narrative options, like diplomacy checks, persuasion checks, um, checks that depend at least in part on your relationship with other characters in the world. But this is something I wish single-player games would do away with. I see the purpose of spontaneity in a tabletop setting. They, uh... They have them all set to, like, base off of roll-20s with um, stat modifiers. Now, it's true that in Pathfinder, by, like, mid-game, if you dump everything you have into diplomacy, as I did because I was a good angel boy, um, you will very rarely fail a persuasion check. Notice I said very rarely and not never. But in the early game... Even if you're trying to develop your character in a diplomatic fashion, towards a diplomatic, like, kind of charisma-driven direction, it, which would mean they're going to be weaker, of course, it's still highly unlikely you're going to be able to do several of the things that you believe you should be able to do based on your base stats or based on other things you've done in the world because you'll get a single bad roll and usually be thrown into a confrontation or something that you just aren't prepared for because, again, you set about resolving things differently. And what about those confrontations then, huh? Well, oftentimes in the game, you'll succeed at a diplomatic check or diplomacy check or a persuasion check, receive a little bit of extra info that is legitimately useful later on, and then usually be thrown into a fight against the people you were trying to persuade anyway. It's something that, if I'm correct, in Pathfinder happens all the goddamn time. Um, but when you're in those fights, you'll notice, huh, that wolf or that centipede's a whole hell of a lot stronger than I thought it would be. And you know why this is? Because at least, I, I don't believe at launch, I believe consistently, they jacked the stats of all the enemies in the game through the roof compared to their tabletop 
counterparts. For instance, there was this famous screenshot going around not long after launch depicting an early game encounter, relatively early game, sorry, like maybe level 6, level 7, what have you, against three owlbears, pretty tanky like magical chimera creatures. But they had the owlbears' stats, specifically their base attack bonus, displayed on screen. You know, the likelihood that they'll be able to hit uh, someone and the amount of damage they'll do if they do manage to hit home. And each of these owlbears according to the Pathfinder rules, had stats in excess of an adult, like, massive black dragon. <laughs> more health, more attack, more defense, more everything, and they're going up against players who, or characters at a level that should not be getting anywhere near a single dragon. And they're fighting three of them as part of, like, a random encounter or whatever. So Pathfinder shot the stats of every single enemy, as far as I can tell, through the roof, and according to the devs, part of it was to compensate for the fact that, well, your party can be up to six people instead of up to four. But when so many of the roles based on these stats have to do with, like, the likelihood that you can hit someone, the likelihood you'll crit, how much damage you do, it feels to me like increasing the amount of creatures or enemies present in an encounter modifies difficulty in a far more fair and far more effective way than increasing the stats, increasing the overall power of the creatures you already have well in excess of what it should be, what players should be able to handle from them. And this is something Pathfinder did to such a ridiculous extent that it impeded the ability of a lot of players, myself included, to really play the game we wanted to unless we dropped the difficulty through the floor because the systems themselves were horribly imbalanced and if we didn't want to min-max and power game then it just wasn't going to work for us even on normal settings. So Pathfinder to me is the modern epitome of antagonistic design as design. And, but and yet wait. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Uh, are you saying like no matter if your party had like you... Or like mm -hmm. six people, yeah. Their stats would be the same. Yes. Yeah. What the fuck? That's not how it works. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yes. Like in in like D and D and you know tabletop RPGs, you have set stats for all the creatures or like um, guidelines how to roll them if you want to make them more randomized. So yeah, if your party's an asshole and they're trying to meta game, uh, <laughs> but like yes, like what you said, how you moderate the difficulty of an encounter is by changing the amount of creatures <laughs> or you don't have to like you don't have to necessarily add more owl bears you can add more other yes of course that are slightly weaker just to 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 fine-tune it jesus fucking christ yeah owl bears stronger than adult dragons <laughs> and yeah So yeah, I want to say that uh, Pathfinder, I managed to go far into the game uh, using the hardest difficulty and still mm -hmm. managed to not min-max every character, so it's possible. It's a challenge, but it's possible. And I did enjoy it, um, especially once I got through the, the base encounter and started being able to... Uh, not die on every single one of them. It was <laughs> because they do throw a lot of swarm enemies in the start of the game, and that is yes, they do. That is kind of bad if you don't know how to deal with them. But yeah, you are correct in that. Uh, that game is particularly unfair towards the player, but 
it's also what kind of make me make it enjoyable for me uh and okay. even even if i if even if i think that uh, for most players they should put it at the minimal amount of difficulty if they want to have some good time with it uh it's still it, it, it's still not impossible to beat and it can be it can be mastered no, no, not at all. And again, the, the point I, I kind of want to, to drive home here in regards to games like this is not in the least that they should not, or this type of mode, this type of experience should not be available, should not be curated. It's that it should not be, as my understanding is from my own experience and reading other players' comments, including professional Pathfinder DMs who said, there's one comment that said something to the extent of, and I love this, uh, I've been running like a, a pretty consistent uh, Pathfinder tabletop at my local hobby shop for about uh, four years now. And if I tried this on my team, if I put this encounter against my team, they would revolt. <laughs> um, like lots of professionals, people who were used to the tabletop game and wanted a faithful adaptation said that on the normal settings, the game as intended, um, yeah. it wasn't what they were expecting yeah. because the difficulty was so excessively enhanced, uh, often arbitrarily. And so I think I think that presenting a fair, non-antagonistic challenge to the player by default, challenge, just non-antagonistic, should be the gold standard. It should be what people aim for. It should be what people curate for their players. And having these more restrictive, these more prohibitive, these more demanding modes, obviously as like optional um, modes of engagement with the game for those who really want them, for people... MC, maybe like you, who really like an intense challenge and derive more enjoyment out of games when faced with one, is absolutely advisable. My issue is with games like Pathfinder, games like single-player Divinity, games like, oh god, Pokemon Reborn, another one I could talk about if we had the time, but won't, um, that have these prohibitive antagonistic systems established as the default and expect players to either conform to a fairly narrow range of solutions or worse to police one another when they say hey maybe this isn't this isn't the best way to uh to go about this as the pathfinder devs kind of uh, as i understand it kind of relied on their community to do what is really weird about pathfinder is that uh, they they did a beta tester so they had people to actually mm -hmm. see how the game would fare and nobody really complained about it so um, I think the, now, the game in itself was already quite, uh, quite uh, narrow in terms of the audience that it would gather, and then yes. it cracked open, and yeah, people saw it was not necessarily alright. And I agree with you that uh, the slider of difficulty should generally be put toward the lower end rather than the higher end. That's something that should be considered, but it shouldn't be removed. The difficulty shouldn't be removed because players no. won't be able to enjoy it. Um, and regarding the beta test, it's interesting you brought that up because I found scores of comments saying just the opposite. Hold on, let me let me head to uh, let me head to Reddit. Um, according to one of the beta testers, um, Reddit username uh, Mr. Slanky. Uh, uh, in response to somebody who said, uh, this is on, like, the owlbear picture, which just went uh, pseudo-viral on the subreddit, um, 
somebody said, oh, I guess I'll just wait for a couple months of patches or what have you. Uh, Mr. Slanky says, quote, don't hold your breath. These balance issues were regularly brought up in beta as early as May when I started getting involved, and we were told repeatedly that balance was where they wanted it due to it being a CRPG and not pen and paper. The number of complaints regarding this topic has more than vindicated the opinions many of us were chastised for having during the beta. So my, my understanding is they, uh, yeah, the creative director told them that everything is just how they wanted it. And uh, if you think it's too hard, just like uh, scale all of the difficulty sliders down to the very base, um, which is, uh, is certainly an approach, but it feels like the devs just didn't want to hear anything from... Uh, from the people who were playtesting the game for them and saying, not like, oh, this is, I don't like this because it's hard, but um, I'm having a really difficult time with this and I'm not sure what else I should be doing. And that, I think, is where the prohibitive element of a lot of this comes in. Like, people who funded the game and wanted it exactly, you know, the way Baldur's Gate would be delivered or something like that were saying, no, this is, this is preposterous. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, on that... To, to close that off, uh, I would say that it's difficult to really figure out the difficulty of a game when you are playing it over and over yourself. Yes. And listening to the audience is sometimes weird because you cannot get an aggregate of what everyone is saying and you get, uh, you get a viewpoint that is completely different. So you have to balance the two. And on that, often when you try to go antagonistically against the player, you go too far, uh, either through bad design of the game, bad mechanics, or, uh, as I said in the beginning, breaking the rules of what you expect in the game mm -hmm. by making something completely different. But it's hard to figure out if it's something that needs to be removed or something that needs to be clarified because both right. can be found both can find a resolution but sometimes removing it is will make more people angry than than it should and in the modern game design it's definitely something that is not often considered what could be more challenging for the player, even maybe at the cost of being too difficult until we can fix it. Uh, no, absolutely. And that's something that a game, a professional-like game critic named uh, Joshua Beiser, who runs a wonderful uh, podcast, YouTube channel, and website called Game Wisdom, which I highly recommend to our entire audience, has spoken about before um, in regards to the problem of pain points in game design, or what he calls pain points. It's something we've discussed in passing on the podcast before, but I think it's particularly salient here. Um, because the pain point is like a subjective measurement, uh, or a subjective experience of a mechanic, of an encounter, something about the game that causes a player to become not challenged, not invested, but frustrated, right? Something that makes me unhappy. And not in the way, necessarily, that getting, like, smeared into paste by Ludwig the Accursed 87 times on stream did. That makes me more determined. I want to do this. I know I can do this. Come on, head in the game. But it makes me feel like, oh, playing this isn't very, isn't very fun. This is kind of tedious. This is kind of demanding. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he spoke, uh, Mr. Beiser did, 
with um, a, an associate of his who's a game developer. And they regularly, in like their their talks, espoused the value of playtesting and really competently assessed playtesting. You're absolutely right, MC, in that if you're creating something, I know this as like somebody who works in the academy. We have the same issue trying to get like professional researchers to just talk to people or teach them without talking down to them, you know, like their their children or what have you. Um it's difficult to take something that has been your entire life that you know like the back of your hand and sit back and experience it like relatively, you know, subjectively as an outsider would. And it's also difficult then if you get something totally different than your experience relayed to you by playtesters to, to not go, well, I don't see how on earth they didn't realize this or what made them think that, you know. And so what Mr. Beiser and his associate emphasize in, like, their article on this, as well as I think it was part of a, a podcast episode, is that it's important to step back and, as you said, attempt to extract an aggregate of feedback from your playtesters and try to get as many diverse playtesters with diverse experience and backgrounds to run through your game as you can. Because if I'm a hardcore, like, tabletop role-playing gamer and I take my, like, CRPG and only shop it around to other people who are very, very familiar with those systems, odds are I'm going to get a very different set of feedback than I would if I presented it to people who play console RPGs or RPGs more broadly, or people who have never played an RPG in their life but really like fantasy games or what what have you, you know? And trying to extrapolate what a general, like, audience's perception might be. Yeah, no, that's... That's the... That's why you make beta testing in the first place. It's to really get the opinion of uh, various genre of people. You'll try to get the assessment and different player will have different experience. If you cater to a specific audience, um, then beta testing for them makes sense. But if you want to get your game uh, over different different, uh, different population, you need to, to open up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my final point for today, because I think we've run through most of the points on my massive-ass list, uh, TM, um, <laughs> pertains to something that, MC, you, you talked uh, on Seth's stream yesterday about, uh, like, I want to be the guy, the old, like, Kaizo platformer, mm. as a, like, textbook example of antagonistic design, right? Well... It's more complicated than that because I want to be the guy who was made by someone who was told over and over again that he couldn't make an art game. Everything that he was doing, it was uh, easy and really boring. Mm -hmm. And he went on to make a point that he could make something really difficult and he made that game to show it. That, that game was made to be antagonistic but beatable. Just for yes. the... For, for the passionate. But the interesting thing about a game like I Want to Be the Guy, or the, the other games that immediately called to mind, the Kaizo Mario titles, are you guys familiar? Mm -hmm. No. Um, they're a series of, uh, for, for our audience, uh, a series of 
like ROM hacks of usually the earlier Mario Brothers games, like Mario Brothers 1 through World, are the ones you most commonly see adapted, with mm-hmm. lots of uh, very I-wanna-be-the-guy-esque uh, sudden-death traps, like clouds that kill you, that appear to be background elements that kill you if you make contact with them. Uh, most every mushroom's a poison mushroom. The ground will fall away beneath your feet, apropos of nothing, and so on and so on. They're um, kind of early what would go on the internet to be known as rage games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and- they even have a specific thing that goes into Geyser that doesn't appear in I Wanna Be The Guy, I believe, is the invisible blocks that will absolutely yep. kill you if you make the wrong jump at the wrong point. Like, appear out of nowhere and send yep. you to your death. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. Here's what I would argue, and I'm willing to, like, fight and die on this hill. I want to be the guy, Kaizo Mario, games like that, they're not good games. Of course they're not. They're frustrating, and maybe people are entranced by the challenge of completing it just so they can say they did. It's an accomplishment, right? Uh, the same way that, like, beating, getting over it with Bennett Foddy, another terrible game would be. But here's the thing. We don't like those games, And we don't know those games, all of us uh, sitting around our computers today, because they're good. We know them vicariously through an emergent online marketplace for frustration, for challenge, for watching other people as, like, video game content... um, curated and created by others, right? Watching people play games instead of playing them ourselves has become increasingly mainstream. We are drawn to, and we can appreciate these games that put screwing the player over or introducing absurd and sudden difficulty um, more than we would have had we to play them ourselves, in which case I don't think many of us would have enjoyed them much at all because we're able to experience them with and through someone else. The development of platforms like YouTube and like Twitch have uh, also given rise to what I call like a a market of vicarious misery, where I might not want to play one of these games. And I will tell you right now, I do not. I do not. But I might want to see somebody else try their hand at it, especially like if there's somebody I know, a content creator whose work I enjoy. Or if... It's YouTube circa 2006, and they just scream until my ears bleed, because that was comedy back then. Um, There's another uh, way to enjoy these kinds of games, is to watch them being speedrun, because speedrunning on those games are really, really nice, and makes them game in that way. But there are speedrun games, I would argue. Of course. Of course they are, and you're right. Some of the speedruns for things like I Want to Be the Guy are works of art. Like mm-hmm. It's incredible what some people are able to memorize and then, then execute. But I think we need to appreciate the distinction as well. This certainly doesn't apply to Pathfinder because nobody, nobody <laughs> is watching like a, a three-hour stream like, oh man, I can't wait to see more attempts against like the grandfather today. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, but... For a lot of these games, it's important to recognize that many of us don't appreciate the game itself. We appreciate the spectacle of somebody else enduring or 
um, diving into it. We got to see this, and this is not an example of antagonistic game design. It's an example of good but really difficult game design recently on my channel with the Champions Road attempts mm. on Mario 3D World that gave Tina and Mate their favorite sound clip of all time. You can find it also a lot in um, Mario Maker 2 and Mario Maker mm -hmm. 1 where they really enjoy to make uh, really, really unfair levels for players yeah and it's not it's interesting because uh you can you can put people in front of it and they will tell you that it doesn't work it's unfair that kind of stuff because it breaks the rule of the world they are trying to establish and it's both important to to actually have this, these games because you can show that to to a public and say that's why we make rules rather than yeah. just removing them because they are not suitable for anyone. It's, it's important that they are present just to be able to say, we need rules, otherwise everything will break. Right. No, no, I, I see that point exactly. Oh, but I actually have a question for, uh, for both of you. Uh, what's your opinion on, uh, you know, Shadow of War? Like, the mechanic where the enemy that kills you gets stronger? Um, okay, so I actually really like the Nemesis system as a whole. I think it's quite interesting. And the fact that enemies that kill you become stronger isn't necessarily antagonistic or punishing, I find. Because depending on, like, the way a certain orc is set up, right, many of them have one glaring weakness that persists no matter how strong they are. Like, you know, oh, there's this war chief who's been rampaging around for hours and hours in my game, but he's, uh, he's still really weak to headshots, you guys. Uh, you can mess around and still take them down if need be. But if you build somebody up by feeding yourself to them a couple of times and then brainwash them, <laughs> you will gain an incredible reward in the form of a really, really potent ally. I think it's a cool system, not beyond the need for refinement, but I I really wish that WB hadn't tried to trademark it because I'd like to see other games do something similar. Yeah, I've not played that game, so I'm not too, too familiar with the system, but I want to say that in a way, it's a way to uh, create a fa failure system in the in the challenge so it might work for some people it might not work for everyone it's it's definitely something to be implemented and tested out and uh, maybe it will not work maybe it will that's kind of that's kind of why it exists well, I believe that concludes today's discussion, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us for what turned out to be a, a more serious and intricate discussion than many we've had. We promise we'll get back to shitting on video game publishers before too long. Um, but we were really, really glad to have this opportunity to dig into something a little more substantial with all of you guys. Um, first and foremost, I want to extend a second very big thank you to our good friend MC from uh, Ferris Moon Studios. Uh, Ferris Moon Entertainment, right? Ferris Moon Studio. Studio. Yes, Ferris Moon Studio. Um, one of the developers of a fantastic mod and working on like an independent game that we uh, we will be sure to deliver more news uh, regarding to you just as soon as we can. 
Um, thank you so much again for joining us, man. It's been a real pleasure, and I think your insight is going to... It was valuable to me, and I'm sure it's going to be very valuable to our audience. Uh, well, thanks. thank you, everyone, for having me. It was, it was a pleasure to be here. Is there anything you would like us to, to plug or anywhere besides the studio's webpage where you would like people to be able to find you? Uh, no, I don't exist on the internet. <laughs> All right, <laughs> you are just enough. an internet mystery. Well, I... I appear on Twitch and then I disappear. <laughs> there you go. Um, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I am Brady, the Overanalyst, joined as always by my good friends and moderators for today's debate, uh, Martina or Seth the Overwitch. Good night, everyone. And Mate or Comrade Potato. Bye-bye, everybody. And I would like to remind you all that you can follow this podcast right here on your platform of choice, as well as finding us at our new YouTube channel at The Overanalysts, where you can find ongoing um, archives of every single episode in an easy, interactable format. Please feel free to post any comments, questions, anything you have to us there, or send us messages via the contact form at our wonderful website, seththeoverwitch.com. Uh, it's your one-stop shop for everything we do. Please keep an eye on that YouTube channel as well in the near future, as we may have some stream archives and other exciting associated projects uh, pop up from time to time as well. Until then, have a wonderful rest of your day, and thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye! <laughs>